This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On air is back for another week right here, Sportsnet 650. Israel Fair, Alex Blair, Joel Gaudet is running the board for us today. On today's show, we'll talk to John Morosi about the Kim Eng uh, decision of her becoming the Miami Marlins GM, as well as uh, what's going on with the Blue Jays. A lot of buzz there in terms of the hot stove and uh, MLB awarded all of their awards over the last week. So we'll dig into that with John Morosi. We'll also catch up with Adam Stanley. On the latest from Augusta, uh, it is not the usual time of year for the Masters, but we've uh, had a pretty interesting tournament through two days and and the start of the third round today. So we'll dig into that with Adam uh, in about an hour. Uh, You can always text us 650-650, or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair, and Alex is at ACPW Blair. Uh, Before we dive into the headlines, Alex, uh, what's going on? Uh, what's, What's up with you? Welcome back to the Saturday show. I saw you uh, getting a little Friday primetime with the program. Yeah, yeah. Fun uh, fun to sit in with walks yesterday. Uh, my voice is feeling it. Uh, as I, I, The audience and you can tell I'm not used to, to talking this much, especially given the fact that uh, uh, you know I'm not exactly out in public all the time talking to people. So uh, you're going to have to carry me today, man. This is this is on you. And, you know, it, it works out because it's it's a master show. It's going to be a golf show for a, a pretty big portion of it. And that's uh, that's right up your alley. Yeah, I was going to say probably the only person that's talked more on Sportsnet this week than you is uh, is Adam because he's been doing <laughs> uh, hits every morning on 590 in Toronto. He's been doing Sportsnet Connected at night. So um, anyway, he's made some time for us at uh, just after one o'clock and and he'll be able to give us all the updates from Augusta's uh, round three is, is carrying on. So um, anyway, why don't we get into the headlines? It's been, uh, you know, actually for a, a quiet time of year, there is a lot of things going on. And you touched on the, the Kim Ng and, and we'll get into that as well. Um, but let's start with the NHL and uh, just a thought on sort of the update with where we are headed and what is going on with the NHL and a potential return to play for the 2021 season. Right. So this week, the latest coming out uh, reported by a number of outlets, but uh, I'll cite The Athletic, which is where I work uh, during the week. It's my my day job and editor at The Athletic. Uh, A lot of details coming out that that Jan 1 date, which has been the NHL stance, at least its public stance, going back to the conclusion of the playoffs, the conclusion of the postseason, was a Jan 1 target to, to get back. Uh, for a 2020-2021 season. Then there were rumblings that it probably was going to get pushed back. We were probably looking at something closer to Feb 1. But the thing that stands out to me about this, Alex, is uh, we've talked about it uh, really since, uh, I guess, the the spring when the NBA and the NHL were planning their bubbles that the NHL was likely to take at least some cues from the NBA. And, and that's that's the big thing to me. The NBA is, is coming back just before Christmas, that December 25th calendar date, uh, really important in terms of the NBA schedule historically. There has been a push there. It's not necessarily been super well received by NBA players, but there is an understanding that this season is going to be disjointed at best. 
and that if they can start it early, that they will maybe get some concessions. The players will get some concessions later on. And it does seem, well, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. And I still feel like it, it might be a little bit, uh, we might be getting a bit ahead of ourselves. The NHL is at least for the time being still targeting that Jan one with uh, an all Canada division, uh, some limited travel. One thing that stood out to me as well, actually, and something that I think is really cool is the idea that they will have teams travel to certain cities and play multiple games there, uh, almost like a baseball schedule, play three games against the same team over the course of, of a week, I suppose. So they're going to have a lot of logistics to figure out. But I, the biggest takeaway for me, the NBA is going to start the end of December. The NHL doesn't want to fall too far, too far behind uh, their basketball competitors. Yeah, I, th I thought it was really interesting because there was there wasn't a whole lot reported until the NBA announced that they had moved and they were going to start on December 22nd. And then all of a sudden, and very typical of the NHL, I find, is they are a very reactionary league. And then all of a sudden, it sort of felt like we have we aren't getting this attention. We should sort of follow suit. Um, it was interesting because the NHL was credited with their sort of delay, if you will, during the return to play. And they waited and waited. And in the end, it ended up being Edmonton and Toronto because COVID numbers were changing. And they were, you know, rightfully applauded for that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's become very clear this week that the NHL would like January 1. And they're aiming for somewhere between 56 and 72 games. Someone has brought up the issue, though, that Christmas poses a bit of a challenge with that because you would be in the middle of training camps, Players usually like to be at home with their families at that time. At that point, you'd be leaving a bubble. You'd be mixing with other people. Um, so I'm I'm wondering if Christmas is going to factor into this and if there's going to be a bit of pushback from the players and we we more realistically see a, maybe a mid-January start date. But this is all going to come down to money. And uh, Elliot Friedman was reporting yesterday that we should have a good idea by American Thanksgiving, which is November 25th, if Gen 1 is going to be the, the go-ahead date because, as you mentioned, the logistics. And uh, it's not leaving them a whole a lot of, you know, a, a huge amount of time to get this all sorted, especially when we're looking at potentially crossing the border, having teams go into different cities. So um, anyway, it's, it's, it seems like they're working a lot behind the scenes. But uh, they still have to figure out the money. And uh, I think that's probably going to be the biggest sticking point is, you know, how much are the players going to see of their salaries if there is not an 82-game schedule? And by all accounts, right. yep. an 82-game schedule is not on the table. We've learned through this process that a lot of the NHL players are traditionalists. So I do think that Christmas will come into play. There were a lot of players, it seemed, at least from reports, that weren't thrilled with the idea of spending their summers playing hockey. They they are very much attached to that September to the end of June schedule that uh, we've become accustomed to. So this will be uh, another, you know, an, another hurdle for them to, to try to overcome. And it's going to come down to money. It's going to come down to some of those logistics, some of those concessions. As you said, Alex, the salary one is, is a huge deal right now. It's probably the, the one that's the most important. Uh, in terms of figuring all of this stuff out. And then from there, there's there's going to be a back and forth because if the players are going to come back uh, maybe faster than expected or play more games than expected and have to deal with certain travel restrictions and uh, they're not going to be in a bubble like they were in Toronto and Edmonton, but there are probably going to be certain restrictions, there's going to be a negotiation. There's going to be a back and forth. Uh, speaking of tradition, probably 
the tournament in golf that has uh, the most tradition. You know, it might be the Open Championship uh, in in the UK, but the Masters in Augusta, Georgia, is the same course every year. It has a certain cachet to it, and while it's not that regular kickoff to spring that we're used to, we had the tournament start on Thursday. We're uh, the start of the third round, so the cuts have been made. You're a big golf guy. What have you made of the first couple of days at this Masters that's uh, unfolding in unfamiliar circumstances? Well, first off, it took 2020 to make Augusta National look like a municipal golf course. Uh, the conditions have notably <laughs> been not as pristine as they usually are. Uh, you can see tee boxes, the greens, there's areas around the greens that, you know, have looked sort of worn out and very typically not Augusta National. Um, so that seems only appropriate. Uh, but it's been an interesting week. Uh, I've got it uh, on in the corner here. And uh, Raja had the update at the top of the hour. Um Dustin Johnson is five under today. Uh, he was tied for the lead at the start of the day. Uh, he's now in sole possession of the lead at 14 under, uh, and he's through 11 holes today. Uh, Justin Thomas is now standing alone in second. He's 12 under um, for the tournament, three under today, and he's one hole back of DJ. Uh, Corey Connors, we're going to have Adam Stanley on at one o'clock. Uh, Corey Connors yesterday shot a 65, which was the lowest round ever by a Canadian at Augusta National and at the Masters. And he has continued it today. He's three under through 16. So he is actually tied for eighth, tied with Rory McIlroy at eight under. And uh, anyway, there's a lot of good names at the top of the leaderboard. Uh, Dustin Johnson, as I mentioned, uh thomas uh we've got uh yeah rory mcelroy's right there after opening with a 75 he's gone 66 and 67 in days uh two and three so it should set up for a fairly compelling final sunday which is usually a big deal at the masters um but we are obviously a little out of whack with it taking place in in november this year so um anyway we'll be able to get into it a little bit more at uh, at one o'clock with our golf correspondent adam stanley um, you touched on it off the top. There was some huge news yesterday um, by the Miami Marlins hiring the first female general manager in North American major professional sports, hiring Kim Ng to be their general manager. What did you make of the news and how significant is it? It's certainly significant. It was received with close to universal applause by people within the industry the comments by people that had worked with her over the last 30 years. She's been involved in Major League Baseball now for over 30 years. Uh, most recently, the last decade or so, working for the commissioner's office. Prior to that, working with the Dodgers, the New York Yankees, where she was an assistant GM during those dynasty years in, in the late 90s. Uh, where, uh, And that's, you know, Derek Jeter now uh, runs the Miami Marlins. He's got a big stake in the Miami Marlins. Uh, there was a, a connection point there. And uh, it's interesting, right? I remember st when I started to have an idea as a young baseball fan about front offices and the people running them and such, probably around that time, around those Yankee Yankee dynasty years, she was someone that was within the public consciousness. She was making top 50, top 100 lists and Sports Illustrated and other similar publications as, as someone who was doing good work, someone who was doing important work. And it seemed like maybe 
that window had disappeared, that she, she was linked to a lot of jobs. Uh, I spoke on the program, as you mentioned earlier, I was co-hosting with Andrew Walker yesterday on Sportsnet 650. We had Hazel May on who talked to uh, some, she did some reporting and said that while, while Kim Ang won't disclose the exact number of GM openings uh, that she interviewed for, that Hazel felt pretty comfortable saying it was at least nine or 10. And that was uh, there, there, that was more so in the past, back when she was uh, working in a front office, not working in the commissioner's office. It seemed like maybe this would never come. Uh, the Marlins are a team that, uh, for better or worse, are known for going in creative routes. Sometimes it gets uh, they get chided for going for you know public attention, trying to draw attention to themselves. The hope that I have, and she is she has earned it. She has a resume uh, as strong as any male candidate out there based on the work that she's done, based on the references that she has. The hope that I have is that the Miami Marlins coming off of a pretty encouraging season put her in a position to continue building out a staff uh, and to continue building out uh, what can be a strong baseball team. She might not have the biggest budget in the world. She's not going to be competing with the Yankees or the Dodgers for free agents. But I hope that it is a pretty clean slate and that she gets a fair opportunity to show that uh, she can do this job just as well as anybody else. You touched on Hazel May there, and, and you and Andrew had her on yesterday on the program. Uh, she sat down in March with Kim Ng for um, National Women's Day. And during that interview, and this is when Kim was still um, a vice president, a senior vice president with baseball operations with Major League Baseball, Hazel asked her what it was going to take, and I quote, she said it would take a bold, courageous, gender-blind owner, and you touched on it there. I think that principal owner Bruce Sherman and CEO Derek Jeter, who Kim's very, you know, was familiar with uh, from her time with the Yankees, I think they deserve a lot of credit, and when I look at it, I think both Brian Cashman, the GM of the Yankees, uh, Joe Torrey, who knew her from the Yankees and then brought her to the Major League Baseball Commissioner's office. I think that they deserve a bit of credit here as well, because I think that there was probably a bit of pushing to make sure that she got her opportunity. And, you know, we're going to have John Morosi on. I, I mean, I'm, I want to put it to John. Is she the most qualified first-time GM in Major League Baseball? You know, 30-plus years in, in the business, three World Series rings, you know, um, when you look at it in that light, it's hard not to see that she more than earned this opportunity. And it'll now be interesting to see what she does with it. Absolutely. And uh, we will we will touch on that and more with John Morosi a little bit later on in the show. A story that we've been tracking for a few months now. It's the biggest story outside of sports in the world. It's COVID-19. It's affected everybody's lives. There has been some developments with that in terms of college sports. Uh, we have been looking at some of this because I think both of us felt uh, quite skeptical that the NCAA and NCAA football would pull off a season given the number of people involved, the number of programs involved. This weekend, a number of cancellations involving some major programs. That doesn't, there's still, I believe, 45 games going on today. Uh, which is uh, less than usual, but still a number of games. But fi but 15 have been canceled or postponed, yeah. which is 30% of today's schedule. Right. And 
as I said, major programs, uh, big time uh, conferences. What's what's the next couple of weeks look like in your mind for the NCAA? Is it more cancellations? I mean, I, I don't. I'm not going to ask you to play, you know, Doctor Bonnie Henry or play a doctor on the radio because we we both don't know anything more than what we're being informed of by you know public doctors by 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 the government in terms of uh, second waves and things of that nature. But what's the future in the immediate term for for college football as we're seeing a number of games wiped out from the schedule this weekend? Well, it's headed in the wrong direction. Uh, a week ago, they had 10 games canceled or postponed, which at that point had been the season high. Uh, a week later, we're at 15, which is you know a fairly significant jump. As you mentioned, it's affected a series of major programs, Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, Pitt, Georgia Tech, um, Auburn. Um, eight of the 10 sort of leagues within college football have been affected. Uh, none more so than the big powerhouse, the SEC, which has four games this weekend, which have either been postponed or canceled. Look, it's like a lot of leagues. I think they're trying to get it done to fulfill contracts, uh, to try and recoup as much money as possible. And the hope is, is that they can get to the finish line with some semblance of, you know, uh, a credible season and that they can have their four teams make it to the semifinals and they can play the national championship game in early January. Um, how that's going to shape out, you know, they're trying to figure that out behind the scenes because, you know, a lot of the games, some of the games have been canceled. Some of them have been rearranged based on scheduling, but you're going to have a number of teams at the end of the year who have played a disproportionate, you know, schedule and trying to determine you know, who gets selected to play in those, you know, very prestigious four semifinal slots, which come out, I think, uh, college football sort of indicates that. I think it's around December 20th. That'll be a real indicator. But at this point, yeah, it's headed in the wrong direction and it's headed in the wrong direction fairly quickly. Um, they've had 63 games canceled or postponed so far this this year. And 15 uh, this weekend. And 15 this weekend, yeah. and we're only in week 11. Right. So. The um, interesting part there, I think, is uh, that college football playoff, having that the, those semifinals leading to the national championship. College basketball uh, and college hockey have been similarly affected. Some college hockey programs have decided to ramp up. Uh, we saw the Ivy League make the decision that they're going to stall all of their, their winter sports for the time being. Um, when it comes to college basketball, the other major moneymaker for the NCAA what I found interesting is seeing the thought that the most important thing about getting a season complete in any way is that there is enough runway to having the NCAA tournament because that's the big moneymaker, very much like the college football playoff. So we can see through a lot of this, and it's the same with the pro sports. It's fulfilling some of these contracts. It's having a product in place to uh, put on television and fulfill those obligations to TV networks that pay a lot of money to to host these these events. And so that's going to be fascinating to watch as they continue to fight an uphill battle. Uh, we've got time for about one more headline. What do you want to dive into before we get to John Morosi? Well, let's let's quickly touch Russell Westbrook. We'll, we'll look at the NBA. 
Shams, your colleague at uh, at the Athletic, reported on Wednesday that he would like out of Houston. Um, and sort of the background to this is that he would like to return to a team where he can play the role of floor general. And he's got three years and north of 130 million left on that deal. Uh, he turned 32 on Thursday. The Knicks, the New York Knicks, have of started course. to be linked to him lately. He could potentially play in a in the backcourt with Canadian RJ Barrett. Do you think he ends up, ends up with the New York Knicks, and what would that do for the Knicks and for RJ Barrett? Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting because uh, Russell Westbrook has got an MVP. He's been an All Star player for a long time, a highly productive player, but he's he's not one of those stars that uh, is just universally accepted as as a game changer uh there there certainly has his detractors those are the types of players that the knicks can tend to get and they're going to bet on the upside and they're going to hope that uh the good parts of his game translate and that he is electrified by the the stage in new york at madison square garden do I think it's the best thing for the Knicks long-term? Uh, no. Do I think it's a great thing for Canadian RJ Barrett? Probably not. Uh, I could be swayed. Uh, it, feels, if, it feels like such a Knicks move. Yeah, it really does. And I mean, there's a few other teams that have been linked to Russell Westbrook, namely the Charlotte Hornets. But it's it's tough now because these Big contracts for NBA stars have never been bigger. We're talking about $40 million a year. And um, with the pandemic and the financial constraints the teams are dealing with, they're not they're not as easily moved um, as as they used to be. And so now, with multiple years left on that deal, the Houston Rockets uh, have had to shake some things up with Daryl Morey leaving the franchise, now joining the Philadelphia 76ers to run basketball operations there. Uh, Westbrook's the, still the second guy on that team, right? There's the James Harden is the franchise player. And that's, uh, I mean, that is where the Knicks live for sure. They live on drawing in these kind of players, trying to, they do it less so than they have in the last uh, probably 10 years or so, because they haven't actually been able to even attract those kind of players. But you look down the list, whether it's Amari Stoudemire, Carmelo Anthony, to before that, Steve Francis, Stephon Marbury, these flashy players with you know big names and big pedigrees but not necessarily the substance to back it up yeah and uh it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because i do think he gets moved uh it sounds like houston's trying to find a market for him uh quickly just before we go to break worth mentioning uh canadian driver lance stroll with his first career poll this morning at the uh turkish grand prix it was the first poll earned by a canadian since jacques villeneuve at the european uh grand prix in 1997 yeah, substantial and uh, a story that uh, has definitely been uh, covered to a certain extent in Canada. Uh, it's, it, it is a sport that isn't necessarily in the mainstream, but when there's a Canadian uh, that's that's in the mix, it, it gets his attention and uh, certainly something to keep an eye on. All right, uh, we'll wrap up the, the headline segment for this week, but we're not done talking sports here. Coming up next, uh, we'll talk to John Morosi from MLB.com, MLB Network and Fox Sports about Kim Eng becoming the new GM of the Miami Marlins, as well as some more tidbits from across the world of baseball. It's on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. You're listening to Sportsnet 650. This 
is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair rolls on Sportsnet 650. Coming up in just a moment, we will catch up with John Morosi uh, to talk uh, the latest in uh, Major League Baseball and the big story uh, that broke yesterday, uh, which was Friday. Kim Ang, the new GM of the Miami Marlins, a long career in baseball, becomes the first woman to hold that title. Uh, we mentioned it a little bit earlier in our headlines, Alex, uh, but uh, you, you mentioned Hazel May uh, having a sit-down for International Women's Day with Kim uh, earlier this year. And uh, yesterday, Andrew Walker and I spoke to Hazel on Sportsnet 650. I encourage anyone to check out both of those interviews. She was also on Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto to offer her perspective. Uh, she has a bit of a relationship with Kim. She also has, Hazel's worked in baseball for a long time. Uh, she knows the environment. She knows the, the big players involved. Uh, before we get to John, uh, what stood out to you the most of uh, the conversation around uh, the hiring in the last 24 hours? Well, listening to Kim speak, I think what stood out to me was she was very thoughtful, very, she wasn't angry that she hadn't been given an opportunity, at least outwardly. Uh, she talked about what a, um, what a privilege it had been to interview and that she understood that teams had gone in different ways. She didn't seem to harbor any anger or resentment towards that. And like I said, I'm, I, I think that Derek Jeter's time with her in New York may have played a really large role. I think John Morosi may have a, a bit of an indication of that as well. But she just seemed, you know, like she had worked really hard um, and, you know, had been through no a number of organizations. She'd worked for the American League. She'd worked for Major League Baseball in the commissioner's office. She had a ton of experience and it was, you know... It, I don't want to say it was time, but it, it was time. And to, to see that it happened yesterday, it's not just a huge story for, for Major League Baseball. It's a huge story for sports in North America and probably sports globally. Because of when you look at baseball and when you look at the big sort of franchise, global franchises, the New York Yankees are in there. And so that brings Absolutely. Major League Baseball in there. And so the impact of her hiring... Um, within Major League Baseball, I think could have a ripple effect around the globe when it comes to sports. In our interview with Hazel yesterday, she mentioned a number of uh, other high-ranking executives who are women in Major League Baseball. It's just that what makes this different is that uh, those jobs tend to be more so on the business side, on the financial side. This is someone who is going to have a direct role in selecting players, in shaping a player development plan. What makes that, uh, I mean, you've spent a lot of time in sports yourself, Alex, and I mean, I think hockey most specifically. How can a different perspective from her background have an impact in your eyes um, in selecting players, building a team, uh, really the tenets of, of being a general manager as opposed to just being in, in another position of power? Well, if, if you talk to general managers in any sport, they'll tell you that a large portion of that job is sort of the face of the franchise, sort of public facing, dealing with the media, 
I don't want to say it's a figurehead role, but there's a lot of people who get no credit that are doing a lot of the work around them, their staff, their immediate staff. And, you know, I know John Morosi, I think, has joined us on the line here. And, and I thought it was interesting. He, he wrote a terrific piece last night. And John's the father of three daughters. And he said, you know, when he got off doing his live hit about the hiring, he sat down with two of his daughters. And it was as much on a personal level as a father of daughters, the role model and sort of the breakthrough for Kim in that role and what that meant to him as a father, as it was on sort of a professional level. And I think that the story itself and the inspiration that she can be and the and the role model for not just young girls, but if you're a girl in high school, a girl in college, whether you're, um, you know, even if you're th- contemplating a, you know, a job transition, that may be the part where she has the biggest impact. And that's, it, that'll be really hard to, to see for, you know, um, I mean, we'll be feeling that 20, 30, 40 years from now. All right. Uh, as you mentioned, John Morosi on the line with us. He joins us on air, Sportsnet 650, national baseball writer. You can find his work, Fox Sports, MLB Network, a couple of other places as well. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, John. How you doing? Doing great, Israel and Alex. Great to be with you guys. And uh, always uh, loved uh, talking sports in the great city of Vancouver. I- I'm telling you, it's-, it's high on my list. Whenever we can start to traveling again, I, I want to get back to your beautiful province here pretty soon. Well, we, we appreciate that. I uh, certainly agree with you, uh, though I am I am very biased in that respect as well. Uh, let's dive into to Kim Ang. And as Alex set up, uh, you wrote a, a very touching story with uh, some personal connections. Uh, what stood out to you about yesterday and, and a pretty big day for Major League Baseball overall? It was a great day. And it's a great day for a variety of reasons. Uh, the first of which is that Kim deserves this. She has worked for 30 years to deserve this and, and candidly deserved this 15 years ago when, when I remember her first interviewing for the Dodgers job uh, that eventually went to Ned Coletti. She is someone who has done everything you need to do and more to prepare for this moment. Uh, when you think about eight playoff appearances, uh, six LCS appearances, three World Series rings, assistant GM of the the two most prominent franchises in our sport, the Yankees and Dodgers, and then 10 years of the commissioner's office, (laughs) there's nothing more she could have done. And I I think that it's correct, those who observed yesterday, that they wanted to say congratulations first, and the second was, what took so long? And that's a very fair question, and uh, I, I wish I had a better answer than to say that she should have been hired uh, at various points in the last 15 years. But the important thing now is she has the job. And she has the job, notably, with the team that's pretty good, with a team that won a playoff series this year against the Cubs, and one that I think is going to get better as time goes on. So she's walking into a very good situation. Uh, Derek Jeter, of course, is the club president there. Derek played for the Yankees and won championships for the Yankees when Kim was working in New York, so there's already a very good understanding there. And we know that Derek Jeter doesn't like to lose. He plans to win, and and trust me when I tell you, he would not have hired uh, Kim Ng unless he believed that she was the best person for the job. I think Derek believes she's the best person for the job. I think Derek is right, and I think she's going to do a tremendous job there uh, for a long time to come there with the Marlins. You touched on it, John, that you know she had been a candidate and had interviewed for a number of positions going back 15 years. Why not then, and why now? Well, I think there's obviously each individual team makes their own choice. 
but there is no question that MLB has acknowledged uh, on a on a broader scope that their hiring practices need to modernize and they need to become more diverse and more inclusive. And that, frankly, starts at the leadership level, uh, the people who are making the hiring. Uh, Theo Epstein, I know, spoke about this uh, earlier this year, that when he, uh, through the conversations around social justice in, in the U.S. and around the world this year, when he really thought about it, he said, you know what, too often I have hired people who uh, look like me and who have similar academic backgrounds as I do. And, and I think that is something that has become quite clear, that quite literally um, there has been too many uh, of, of those hires uh, in the past uh, of, of, of people by people who are, who are similar to those who are getting the jobs. And I think it's now, um, I think, a writ large conversation that has to happen. I think baseball has done at times a very good job of ensuring that uh, people of diverse backgrounds are interviewed, but ultimately they are deserving of these opportunities, and I'm frankly thrilled that Kim finally has gotten it. Again, she deserved it a long time ago, and I think now this is um, something that she has deserved and and something that that I think she'll do a tremendous job with as as time goes on. And, And I would note as well that Kim Ng, you think about her background, she was uh, the, the most valuable infielder, uh, the most valuable pl- uh, player in that position group at the University of Chicago, which is one of the great academic institutions uh, in the United States. So she, by the way, she has, uh, she has fulfilled that aspect as well of, of being able to compete as a student-athlete at, at a high level, which frankly is, is about the level of, of participation and in fact transcends the level of athletic participation of a great many GMs uh, who are male in, in this sport right now. Uh, many of them played some in college and many of them didn't, uh, but certainly a great many of them did not play professionally. So it, it really, I think, guys, is, uh, is a, a case where baseball is working on it, and I think this is one result, one, one very strong data point, is working on truly thinking about hires of people who do not necessarily look like the people who are doing the hiring. And that has to be a very intentional process. And I think that with the words of Theo Epstein and others around the game, this is something that baseball has to take better ownership of. And I, speaking as a a white male, uh, I am am frankly glad that this uh, conversation is now starting to happen on, on a more robust level. John Morosi on air with us, Sportsnet 650. I think if there were any other person hired, John, in this situation, we would immediately jump to this question. Uh, You mentioned that the Marlins are coming off a pretty positive season. They won a playoff series. Uh, They made some noise. They showed like they were a team on the rise. What exactly is the opportunity that she is uh, walking into in Miami? Uh, It's very high. And obviously this past year, the playoff field expanded. There were more teams that made it. So that was one reason why we saw the Marlins in there. But Let's not forget they overcame the first wide-scale in-season COVID outbreak uh, in U.S. professional sports, and they were able to overcome that uh, after not playing for a week or so. Many people questioning the the seriousness of of the players throughout the course of the COVID protocols. How how seriously were they adhering to them? Was there a leadership shortcoming? A lot of questions, some of which were reasonable, some of which were, were frankly unfair uh, in terms of uh, their overall 
conduct and professionalism. And I think they, they answered a lot of questions after that, that this was a very professional team. This was a team that cared deeply about the sport and their own health and the health of others. And, and they overcame a considerable amount to, to make the playoffs. They beat the Cubs, um, I believe, without conceding a run in two games uh, at Wrigley Field. And then, and then I think had a good showing against a, uh, what was a better Braves team in, in the next round. So I, I think that this is a team that with some modifications and maybe some very targeted offensive upgrades could be a team that challenges the Braves. I think their rotation on their best days, the likes of Sixto Sanchez and, and Pablo Lopez, they've got some very intriguing young arms that I think allow them to compete with the Braves or anybody else. I, I think that you look at the Braves lineup and they've got the MVP and Freddie Freeman, and uh, we'll see what happens with Ozuna, who's a free agent. But the Marlins, I think, are probably one or two significant hitters away from being able to compete directly with the Braves. But this this is a team that can make the playoffs again. And I, I think Kaming, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that she's walking into a situation that allows her to compete right away. This is not something where she's going to have to wait five years to have a good club. She's got a good club today, and one that I think with the right amount of of modification could be a a team that really threatens to take a nice deep playoff run in 2021. John Morosi joining us on air, Sportsnet 650. John, you you touched on minority owner and CEO Derek Jeter. why did Derek go in this direction? What what do they like about Kim, and why is she a good fit for them and their organization at this point? Well, for a variety of reasons, and I think that her experience at the commissioner's office is really important. She's someone who, uh, over the last 10 years, has taken a, a really key lead on a lot of international operations initiatives for the sport. Um, Certainly, uh, she's someone who is of Chinese heritage, and she understands uh, the Asian market very well. She also understands Latin America very well. She had a very important role uh, in baseball's operations uh, in the Dominican Republic with respect to um, safeguarding against fraudulent activity that we've seen be a problem there in, in recent years. So she has a very close knowledge of the Dominican Republic. She knows Mexico very well. She's worked a lot on baseball's player agreements there and, and, and the transfer agreements in Mexico. So her, her experience is, is vast. And uh, again, she was with the, with the Yankees when Derek was there. And so Derek knows her from that, that experience. She was instrumental in the Dodgers front office when they got to be a, a very competitive club again. Uh, there around the late uh, part of the first decade of the century, 08, 09, back-to-back playoff appearances. So she's won really everywhere, and and she's always been someone who's had a lot of responsibility. I know just in my interactions with her in the past, I mentioned this in the column, she's she's unflappable. You're not going to say something that surprises her. She has seen a lot in 30 years in the game. Um, She's very tough. She's very smart. She's very adaptable. She's very relatable, a great communicator. Uh, These these are all the traits of a great leader, and she's got them. So I I, I think that Kim Eng is going to be a tremendous GM, the Marlins are lucky to have her, and, and as, as you referenced in, in what I had said earlier uh, in my column last night, you know, as the father of three daughters, this was a very special day for me. It's special because I know who Kim is. Uh, I consider her a friend. I've, I've learned from her a lot over the years. I've really admired her intellect and who she is, and, and so for me to be able to, 
to tell my daughters that someone who I know is the first female GM in, in the sport that I cover was, was special to me. And, and I think on a broader level, too, um, I, I shared the news with a, a dear friend of our family who um, is, is, has been the babysitter of our kids since they were born, who's, who's Chinese-American and who doesn't have a lot of familiarity with baseball. But I shared the news with her, and, and she texted me back immediately saying how proud she was uh, as, as an Asian-American to hear this news. So uh, she's now going to be a fan of, of the Marlins. And, it, and it's all about expanding the number of people who, who can connect with a franchise. And, and we know this to be true, that, that when you are um, looking around and, and cultural influences that, that are there, uh, whether it's in the U.S. or Canada or anywhere, when you see people in leadership positions who remind you of yourself and your own story, it's powerful and it resonates. And that's that's something that's going to matter, and I hope it matters for a lot of um, people of, of Chinese and Asian descent in the U.S. and Canada, all around the world, that, that look at Kim and see themselves in her story. This is so why representation matters. It's why uh, a lot of conversations around social justice and, and the political process in this country um, are, are really emotional right now, because representation is, is very important, and I think that uh, we're certainly at a stage where, as the father of, of three girls, that, that they can look at leaders uh, in, certainly, in, in sports and the, the vice president-elect of, of our country and, and see people who remind them of themselves. Uh, very well said, John. Uh, we will transition to the Blue Jays, a topic that uh, is not quite as uh, important in the grand scheme of things, but uh, they are they are looking like a team uh, in the offseason that uh, is poised to make a big move. Uh, you did report earlier this week that Francisco Lindor looks likely to be moved from Cleveland. The Blue Jays have been linked to him for some time, though they're not necessarily the front runner. Uh, they're out there. They've got some money to spend. They also, kind of like the Marlins, have a exciting young team to build around. Where do you think the Blue Jays are at in the next couple of weeks, couple of months in terms of, of getting out there and making an impact move? Well, they're a team that want to be aggressive. It's clear to me that they believe that they are uh, on the cusp of something special. And certainly a lot of that has to be with their core of, of position players, the Bichettes and the Guerreros and the Biggios and the Guriels. They're the, the core of this club, but they can also now supplement that group with potentially someone like a Francisco Lindor, whom Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro know well. Also in the free agent pitching market, I would expect them to make one more signing or move in that regard. Uh, you look at the AL East, and, and I, I think that the Jays are close, but we saw in the playoff series against Tampa Bay they're not as good as the Rays right now. And the Rays pitching depth is something that is really extraordinary in, in the sport right now. And so the, the Ryu signing was outstanding. He worked out well in year one. I think that they should try to bring back someone like a Taiwan Walker or maybe go out and sign a Corey Kluber, who, of course, is known well to Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro as well from going back to the Cleveland days. Those are moves that I think – have to be made for this team to take that next step and really compete with with the Yankees and the Rays for supremacy in that division. They made the playoffs, but I think we saw very quickly in that first-round series they were not of the caliber of the Tampa Bay Rays. And, of course, the Rays make it to, to Game 6 of, of the World Series, and it's very clear that they were one of the elite teams in the game. So I think it's helpful for the Jays to have that measuring stick. They know what they've got to do to close that gap. And I think that gap um, 
to for it to truly close, you probably need one more impact bat. Could be Lindor, could be a D.D. Gregorius, could be a Marcus Semyon, then maybe you swing Bichette to a different position in the infield. And, and then I think you answer what Vlad, Vlad has to do from the standpoint of both sides of the ball in the years to come. But then also add a pitcher. I think if they add an impact pitcher and an impact bat, and hopefully with their overall uh, payroll situation, I think you've got to credit their group with, with not handing out a bunch of bad contracts. They've done a very good job of managing their payroll effectively to the point that now that they, they've got a chance to get good, they can spend without worrying about 20 or 25 or $30 million of, 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 of dead money effectively on the payroll books that, that really hamper their movement. They're, they're a pretty free-flowing team right now from a standpoint of their spending, and I think Alex Anthopoulos going way back deserves credit for that, but certainly the current group of, of Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins do as well. Fox Sports' John Morosi joining us on Sportsnet 650. The other thing you indicated this week, John, was that Cleveland seemed to have some interest in trying to get the Mets involved in potentially a Lindor trade. Um, reading between the lines, I get the sense that there may be some players in their system that Cleveland likes. When you know, How will that impact the Jays, and do you see a ready trade to be made with the Jays, um, and would Lindor need to sign an extension for that to make sense for both Mark and Ross? That's a great question. I would say that on that latter question, it depends on what the ask is going to be uh, in terms of what what would have to be given up uh, to make that deal work. I think ultimately, and I'm sure the Jays would say, yeah, let's let's talk about this and, and, and let's see if we can find a way to, to make that deal work. But if you're getting them for one year, you're probably comfortable paying a certain price in prospects. And if it's for more than one year, it's probably a, a greater level of, of prospects. And I, I think that's where having the the conversation and and give, being granted the extension window would be important to the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, and and it's interesting because of course uh, Lindor is, is Puerto Rican. The, the Jays' current manager Charlie Montoyo is Puerto Rican. Uh, one of the Jays' icons, as you know, Roberto Alomar is Puerto Rican. There's there's that uh, the, there's that heritage. Certainly, uh, you can go back further and, and Carlos Delgado as well. So it's. It's an organization that is well-known in Puerto Rico and, and has a, a great heritage there. I think it's going to be important for the Jays to really pull out all the stops from a recru- recruiting standpoint to make sure that uh, Frankie hears all about that and really understands what it would mean to play in Toronto and, and how great it can be in Toronto when the, when the team is really playing well. He also may say, listen, uh, with all due respect, I want to hit free agency in a year and, and let's you know, let, let's have the conversation now about a one-year situation, but I really want to hit free agency. And if that's the case, then maybe the Jays have to be comfortable um, with whatever price tag would be, would be asked by the, by the, the, the Cleveland Indians. I, I think that from an Indian standpoint, if they want to get a young infielder, the Jays have that between Austin Martin and Jordan Groshans. One of the two of them could be a, a key piece in the deal. And the Mets, frankly, as well, have some pretty young infielders that I think would, would be enticing to the Indians that potentially Ahmed Rosario really, towards the end of the year, lost his role to Andres Jimenez at the end of the season. So I think that's a, one name. Jimenez probably is, is one to keep an eye on as potentially someone that could go back to Cleveland. But I think that if, if you're a club right now, that wants to make a big-time move, whether it's Lindor, Lindor or anybody else, you want the Mets involved because they do appear to be very eager to spend and make a big splash. And so as a general rule, whether it's a free agent or a, or, or a trade candidate, you almost have to wait for the Mets to fully hire their front office in place 
before you can really engage with, with almost anybody in terms of getting close to a deal because you want to be able to, to cycle back with the Mets and say, okay, listen, hey, uh, what can we do here? Uh, who do you want? Do you want to do a deal? Because given what we know about the Mets, uh, they're going to want to be involved in every big-time conversation, and it's hard for them to really make a trade like a Lindor deal until they've hired their GM, which hopefully could happen in the next uh, week to 10 days. Yep, certainly still a lot on the hot stove uh, still to, to go down in the next weeks and, and months as we head toward a 2021 season. Uh, that was great, John. Thanks a lot for making the time for us. Israel, Alex, my pleasure. I always love catching up. And, you know, please reach out and stay in touch. And, and uh, I'll, be, I'll be excited when we can talk about World Junior Hockey again here. Let's, let, let's hope that the tournament uh, <laughs> is safely, safely done there in, in Edmonton and, and can't wait to see hockey back on the ice as well. Uh, we'll do that, John. Thanks a lot. John Morosi, national baseball writer. You can find his work at MLB.com. You can see him on MLB Network and Fox Sports. Loves uh, his all right. hockey. Yes, he does. He, yes. He, and he, he, he knows what he's talking about. He keeps a, he's got a keen sense of what's going on. He does a lot of radio. In Toronto, he follows the Leafs. I know he was uh, following the Canucks through the bubble, just like Canucks fans across Vancouver were as well. All right, coming up next, uh, this is going to make Alex happy. We're going to dive in deeper into the Masters. Adam Stanley, golf reporter, doing some work for Sportsnet. You've, he's been all over the platforms of the last few days. Obviously, a big week for him, a big, big week for golf. It's Masters Talk, and we'll do that next. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on Sportsnet 650. Time for Sportsnet today. This is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. You're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair right here, Sportsnet 650. About to dive into some Masters talk, day three at Augusta. Alex, this is uh, this is your thing. You're the golf guy uh, among us. You uh, you play a lot. Uh, I think you're you're. A big fan of the game as well. Before we get to, to Adam Stanley, who will join us uh, in a few moments, what does the Masters in Augusta in general mean to you as a guy that uh, that is passionate about golf? It's usually just that tournament you look forward to uh, up here in Canada, whether it was when I was living in Vancouver or Toronto uh, or Calgary. Uh, usually there's that long off season from golf where you can't play because of the cold conditions and the weather. And usually you're just chomping at the bit. And uh, you know, that first, that first sort of weekend in April, when the master starts, you're just kind of super giddy for golf and it's just exciting. Um, the pictures are always just really beautiful um, and as they say, it's like a tradition unlike any other. So um, it's it's obviously been a, a really weird year. Um, it's usually the first Masters of the. Uh, it's usually the first major of the year, uh, and this year it actually wraps up the the major schedule. And uh, it's sort of the it's sort of our last experience of golf before we will probably go into a bit of a dark period here. So. Yeah, I'm a fan as well. It is for me, it usually is around baseball opening day. I'm a big baseball fan and it just really, you know, it, it, it really ties everything together this year, especially because of the circumstances, the fact that it's in the fall as opposed to the spring seems to have made for a pretty interesting tournament. And we'll get into it with Adam in a sec. But what, what, what have you made of the of the games or of, of the of the play so far through uh, through the first you know, half of uh plus now almost down most guys are almost done the 
the third round of uh, of the of the tournament. Yeah, the conditions have been really interesting, and I think um, I think we've got Adam on the line here. I think we'll bring him in, Adam Stanley, who's a golf journalist uh, who's been working this week for uh, Sportsnet, and I think you're probably the only guy who's been on Sportsnet more than anyone else this week, Adam. So we appreciate you making some time for us. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Very happy to uh, to come on and, and chat. We've got uh, kind of the third round coming down to the wire here now, so we'll be interested to see how things look uh, into Sunday. But uh, it's always exciting, even though you know it doesn't really feel like uh, a usual Masters. It, it's still the Masters, and the fact that we even had a tournament, uh, a Masters at all this year, I think is, is something to be excited about for sure. Definitely. Uh, Izzy and I were just chatting about the difference between April and November. And I think um, we can both agree that the conditions are playing significantly different. Uh, as I look at the leaderboard, Dustin Johnson is 15 under for the tournament. He's through 14 holes today. Um, he's on pace to break the scoring record at Augusta, which is held by both Tiger Woods and Jordan Spieth, uh, overall 18 under 270. Um, how, how much of the conditions impacted this year's Masters? And do you think we'll we'll look at this record with an asterisk at all because of the time of year it was played? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the the biggest thing that's evident about the conditions of Augusta National now versus April is that the grass that the guys are playing on uh, this week, I mean, it was only planted, you know, five or six weeks ago. Uh, it took about 10 days for it all to catch but this grass is is a lot more chewy. It's a lot thicker. It's just it's not as ripping quick as what we're used to in in April. April is the end of Augusta National season, but uh, October November is the beginning of the time that people can play golf at Augusta National. So everything's super fresh. Everything you know, it, it's not it's not that quick. Uh, it doesn't have that quick pace, both the fairways and the greens that we're used to. Uh, so because of that, and because of the rain. Uh, that fell early on in the week and then certainly through Thursday that caused a big delay. Uh, the the greens especially and the fairways got uh, much more, much softer. Uh, there's not all that much run out to so the guys like a Dustin Johnson uh, who hits the ball a mile. He, he just has such a big advantage because he's going to bomb, you know, a drive about 300 yards in the air. And then he's going to have a eight or nine iron into a lot of these greens where somebody like, you know, take Canadian Mike Weir, for example, He's a much shorter hitter. He's going to hit it about 270, uh, and he's going to have a five or a six iron. So, you know, Dustin Johnson is not only one of the longest hitters on the planet, longest hitters this week, but he's also in the top 10 in greens and regulation and in the top 10 in putting. So when you combine all those things, uh, you get somebody like Dustin Johnson running away with it, uh, and the conditions have just kind of lent themselves to somebody who plays the game like Dustin Johnson to take advantage of the much softer Augusta National. We always talk about the importance of Masters Sunday and that final round, and there's always uh, an analysis of the leaderboard, and is it something that's going to play for the TV audience? Is it going to capture the, capture the attention of people that might not necessarily be watching all of the rounds of the Masters? Uh, Dustin Johnson having a heck of a round today to put himself in front, but if you were to look at the, the leaderboard right now, and there's still a, a number of players finishing out the back nine of, the, of their third round, what do you look at this leaderboard and translating to tomorrow in terms of, of generating that audience? 
Yeah, I think, you know, Dustin Johnson, it looks like he's going to have at least one more birdie opportunity, if not two, before he finishes. So say he gets to 17 under par by the time he closes. You know, you look down the leaderboard and you think, oh, Rory McIlroy, he's like right there. And, and Brooks Kepka, yeah, he's right there. He's, you know, inside the top 10. Yeah, okay, fine. They're inside the top 10, but they're still eight or nine shots back of Dustin Johnson, hypothetically, going into tomorrow. The interesting thing at least from a storyline perspective, is that Dustin Johnson has not in his career been able to close out major championship leads on a Sunday. He, for some reason, has been really, really trouble. It's been troublesome for him to close the door and, and win more majors. He's only won one major championship, which is so, so surprising for a guy of his kind of calm demeanor and the fact that he's won so many times on the PGA Tour. So the fact that the precedent has been set for Dustin Johnson to struggle on Sunday may open the door for a lot of these chasers. And the interesting thing about the chasers, uh, Rory and Brooks and Justin Thomas and John Rahm, and even some of the more unheralded guys like a Sun JM, like a Cameron Smith, you know, that back nine at Augusta National, uh, it, it is receptive for scoring. You know, you could make an eagle on 13. You can make an eagle on 15. Uh, there's a bunch of holes that are birdie opportunities there. So even if somebody is four shots back, going into the back nine, you know, they could make up ground pretty fast. So the combination of scoring conditions in the back nine at Augusta National on a Sunday, plus DJ having not been able to close the door every time at a major on a Sunday, I think still leaves the door open ever so slightly for a bit of a dramatic Sunday. Adam Stanley joining us here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Adam, one of the names we talked a, a lot about leading into the tournament, but we haven't mentioned yet, is Bryson DeChambeau, uh, who's currently sitting 41st. Uh, he's just one under for the tournament. Uh, he's one under today through 16. I was curious, I, you know, I followed his sort of tournament so far, and it, I'm wondering from your perspective, was it a little bit unlucky on his part? I know he had that sort of lost ball, I think, in the second round. Mm -hmm. I saw some putts that just lipped out. Do you think he was a little unlucky this week, or do you think his strategy doesn't work at, a, at Augusta National? I know. I think, I think it's a combination of all those things. I mean, he said uh, yesterday in a post-round interview with the Golf Channel that he was not you know, feeling and he wasn't playing at, at 100%. Everything was just a little bit off, and, and we could see that. And then today he kind of came out and admitted that, you know, health-wise, he wasn't, he wasn't 100%. So, you know, between the years you know, when you're a little bit off and, and even health wise, when you're a little bit off, Augusta national is not really the place for you to, you know, find what you need to have success. I, I don't think that his approach to the golf course was, was incorrect in, in any way, shape or form. I mean, Tiger Woods in 1997 basically did the exact same thing when he kind of burst onto the scene, he was just hitting driver everywhere, flipping a wedge in there and, and making the putts uh, and scoring at a clip that nobody had ever seen before. You know, Bryson DeChambeau has that, you know, has that in his wheelhouse. He, he has that ability. Um, he's always struggled at Augusta National, though, on the, uh, on the putting green specifically. He was definitely exposed with that this week again. Um, you know, Augusta National is a, is a combination, the perfect combination of both art and science. You have to have success on both of those things in order to have success at the Masters. Bryson was leaning much more towards the science side of things. Uh, and I think he got caught on that front. He, he needs to really, you know, tighten the screws a little bit uh, on all aspects in order to have success at Augusta. Like you said, he did have some bad luck, uh, but he, his approach I think is fine. He just didn't execute on that approach. 
as you just predicted, uh, Dustin Johnson just made a birdie on 15. So he's now got a force shot lead. He's at uh, 16 under. Uh, we should mention the Canadian contingent because there was a little bit of history made yesterday uh, or sort of wrapped up. I th- was it was it wrapped up this morning, Adam, with Corey Connors in his morning, 65? Yeah. 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 So just, you know, Corey Connors is a name that sort of emerged in sort of Canadian golf circles this year. But put into context sort of the tournament that he's had. And, you know, I think he's currently sitting, uh, is he eight under, I think, for the tournament? Six under. Six under. So, we en- yeah, so we ended up making a couple bogeys coming in. But, you know, to your point about uh, historical context, I mean, Corey Connors, out of all of the Canadians that have ever played the Masters, Corey Connors shot a 65 in his second round. So it was, you know, 80% done yesterday, and he played just two more holes this morning. Made birdie on both, shot 65. The lowest round by a Canadian prior to Connors' 65 was a 68 done by, you know, five or six different guys. So not only did Corey Connors, you know, bust the record by a Canadian, but he, you know, he took it really deep. So 65, lowest round by a Canadian in the history of the Masters. You know, Corey has never had a regular Masters tournament. The first time he played, he was an amateur. The second time was last year when he had won on the PGA Tour the week prior. So he was the last guy in the field. And then, of course, this year, the Masters is in November. Um, but Corey has had a kind of an interesting run on the PGA Tour. One of the best ball strikers on the planet, ball, bar none. Uh, greens and regulation, he's number one on the tour. Uh, he drives it long enough, and, and that's all you need at Augusta. His putting has always been his Achilles heel. He'll be the first person to say that his putting is, is awful. Statistically, he's one of the worst on tour. But about eight weeks ago, he switched to putting with his left hand low. And that has really been a game changer for him. You know, he, he just putted average this week, but putting average has now allowed him to be, you know, competitive with uh, with some of the best players in the world, which is great to see. So Corey Connors, heck of a week. He's inside the top 20 right now. If he gets inside the top 12, he'll qualify for the Masters next year. So certainly something to keep your eye out uh, for as it relates to Corey Connors for next year. Adam Stanley on air with us, Sportsnet 650. One of the things that makes the Masters so special are the galleries and the fans, and and it it has that tradition. That's something that we're not seeing this year. Have you noticed that uh, watching the Masters this this year that it, it's it's maybe missing that special ingredient, or at least part of of that special ingredient to the, the Masters formula? Yeah, special ingredient is a, is a great great way to describe what the patrons mean to Augusta National. To me, it's the same. Same kind of deal. You know, I was talking about this uh, pre-tournament on a, on a couple of radio hits. And, you know, I said that the, the fans and the groups of fans and the, and the buzz and the electricity and the roars, you know, it always, almost becomes a, a living and breathing entity of the Masters. You know, you know when something's happened at a particular part of the golf course, uh, you can tell. You can tell what's going on. There's been, you know, some hooting and hollering uh, from, you know, the, uh, the members and their spouses who are on site uh, this week. But, you know, there really hasn't been a whole lot of anything otherwise. You, you look at, you know, how important the crowd was to Tiger Woods's win last year. They almost carried him across the finish line. You know, and this year there's just uh, there's just nothing. There's not that and it's almost, you know, it's interesting that somebody who doesn't really need the crowd in Dustin Johnson, he's very lackadaisical, he's very laissez-faire, he's very chill, um, you know, it, without any crowds, it doesn't really matter to him. Um, and so it's fascinating to see him lead 
on a uh, in a year where there is no crowd. Somebody like Rory who feeds off of it. Obviously, somebody like Tiger who feeds off of it. You know, they're just not up at the top of the leaderboard. But definitely, you know, it, it, it's something that's missed at least from a viewership perspective, and certainly uh, from the perspective of some of the players who have been there and gotten used to what it's been like to play in front of all these patrons, uh, it, it's missed. So hopefully back in, in April when we have the 2021 Masters, uh, they'll be allowed some crowds again and make it feel a little bit more normal. Sportsnet's Masters golf correspondent Adam Stanley joining us here on Sportsnet 650. Adam, anyone who follows you on Twitter will have seen your uh, your profile pic, which looks to be a tee shot on number 12 at Augusta National. Uh, yes. I'm wondering if you'll indulge us in just giving us the backstory of how you ended up on uh, on the links down there. Yeah, 100%. You know, four, four years. So I've covered the Masters on-site for Sportsnet twice before, 2016, 2017. So in 2016, that was my first year covering it. Uh, I got drawn... Uh, to win the the media lottery. So every year they allow for about 36 to 40 media members to play the golf course on the Monday after uh, the event wraps up. So same position, Sunday pin position. Uh, You get the run of the place. You get to use the tournament practice area, the putting green. You get a caddy. You get to share a locker in the uh, the champion's locker room with a past winner. Um, And it's just, uh, it was a day that I'll, uh, I'll never forget, you know, some people ask me how it uh, how it went and you know if I'm sitting down for a beer with somebody uh, I can pretty much regale them with every single shot that I hit all day long because it was just one of those things that you file away in your memory bank and you just think man I can't believe I actually got to do that and uh, you know playing Augusta National it's everything that you would think it would be uh, and more it was it was an amazing day. Yeah I mean Alex of the two of us is the big golf guy so I know that he is super jealous uh, i am a terrible player but even i'm pretty jealous because yeah. that that is a really really cool experience uh thanks a lot for taking the time adam and uh, enjoy the final round tomorrow no worries guys thanks for having me take care all right adam stanley covering the masters for sportsnet.ca you can check out his coverage there uh it's been an interesting tournament a weird tournament to follow and uh it, it's true right you look at you look at the leaderboard right now and Dustin Johnson's got a four-stroke lead. He's played amazing today. He's at seven under through 15. And that sounds like someone that should be on a collision course uh, for a green jacket. But what's happened with Dustin Johnson, I mean, you, you go look at his top finishes. He's got the one title. He's got a bunch of second place finishes, especially in the last couple of years, 2019, 2020. He is a guy that is uh, about as talented as anybody on the tour. But it's been that final Sunday where it's been uh, it's been a challenge. Uh, there have been some times where he has. Uh, it's not like there's been notorious meltdowns necessarily. Certainly not to the extent of uh, say a Jean Vandeveld or anything of that sort. But uh, he's he's been. Uh, He's he's dropped back to the pack on Sundays when the expectation is for a player with his talent that uh, that he could and should run away with it. Uh, so Alex, with Johnson playing so well today, heading into Sunday, what are your expectations? I mean, we just heard from from Adam and the thought that there is still that that creeping doubt uh, for as well as he's played today and as well as he's he's been playing, you know, for the last couple of years that this is not wrapped up. What do you, what do you expect to see tomorrow? 
Yeah, I think to your your question to Adam, I thought was great as far as looking ahead to Master Sunday. That will be the storyline, no matter what the lead he has is, is going to be, can Dustin Johnson finish this off? And, you know, as we look at it right now, I think he's got a four-shot lead, um, but he's got, you know, a couple of good players behind him, um, none bigger than Justin Thomas, who's, I think, five back at the moment. Um, but Sunjay M is four back, and, you know, that's going to be the question. You know, many people, you know, specifically in Vancouver, will remember the 25 uh, or the 2015 U.S. Open, which was held at Chambers Bay, just south of Seattle. And that was where Dustin Johnson had a chance to win it on the 72nd hole and three-putted the green, giving the U.S. Open to um, Jordan Spieth. And, you know, even going back to, I think it was the 2010 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, he went into the final round with a, a significant lead, and I think he blew up and shot an 80. So, you know, his one and only major championship has come at the U.S. Open, which was at Oakmont in 2016, the year after he struggled at Chambers Bay on the 18th, um, the 72nd hole. So that will be the storyline tomorrow. And as most people will tell you, the final round at the Masters doesn't start until the back nine on Sunday. So it'll be, you know, he's cruising along, but this is also Dustin Johnson's MO. Um, he cruises along early, um, but he has had a trouble uh, getting it across the finish line, specifically when it comes to majors. We just heard Adam's story of uh, playing Augusta. Is that, is that number one on your, on your golf bucket list or is there another course or let's just say sports bucket list in general? Would, would playing Augusta be at the top of the list or at least in the conversation? It would definitely be in the conversation. I'd be, I think because of how difficult it, and almost impossible it is to play, it's kind of even off the radar. I, you know, I sort of tend to look at some of the courses that have held British Opens, like Carnoustie's a course that I would love to play. Um, I was fortunate enough to go and, uh, and take in the 2004 Open, which was held at Royal Troon in Scotland. And, uh, you know, there's some golf courses in the U.S. I had a chance to play Pebble Beach last summer, um, like before the pandemic hit, which was a really cool experience. Um, Bandon Dunes down, the, down on the Oregon coast. Um, would I love to play Augusta for sure? But it almost feels like it's not even a possibility. <laughs> and, you know, as Adam said, they do that media draw. And if yeah. you're fortunate enough to get it, you get a chance to play on the Monday, like a day after. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I played the old course at St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, and I want to say it was the, they do a, a tournament there, sort of a European cup tour uh, called the Dunhill Cup. Okay. And so I got to play it the Monday after that tournament. So the grandstands were still up. It still had a very like professional course feel. And that was a really cool experience. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not holding my breath on Augusta. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, growing up, my dad's a golf golf fan. My brother has become a big golf player. And watching the Masters, it felt like a, it didn't feel like a real place. Like it's it just too pristine, too perfect. Always from a dr drama golf perspective, something going on. I mean, I grew up with Tiger Woods dominance. Uh, you know, he's the the lead golfer for me in, in my lifetime. And I mean, I, I would assume a lot of people that that's the case. And it just felt like every time uh, it came to master's time, it came down to play Augusta. There was something magical going to happen. Uh, it's, it is a place that to me feels almost inaccessible. And uh, I, I, I kind of agree with your sentiment there. Uh, it's uh, it's got a special place. It's being played at a different time right now. 
you know, none, none of that, the patrons, the grandstands, they're not there this year, but Dustin Johnson with a heck of a third round has put himself in a position to make uh, master Sunday in November. Uh, an interesting one for people to to follow tomorrow, and maybe some of the big names that are just behind him might make it uh, might make it a bit difficult for him as he you know turns the corner and, and plays down the back nine. All right, we'll wrap up the show next. This is on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair, and you're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. for Sportsnet today. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Wrapping up On Air for another week here, Sportsnet 650. Israel Fair, Alex Blair. Running the board for us today is Joel Gaudet. We like to, you know, stretch our legs a little bit in this segment. Kind of have a bit of a structure that we've built up over the last few weeks, last few months, as we've gotten the opportunity to do the show here every Saturday. And uh, it is, I, I enjoy the last segment because, uh, you know, we, we get the informative guests and then we get to unpack what uh, what we just covered with them. And so uh, today we talked to, to John Morosi, we talked to Adam Stanley about the Masters, um, but the big story in, in sports yesterday, Alex, was uh, the hiring of Kim Ang as uh, Miami Marlins general manager. And it was a story that touched a lot of people. Uh, I mean, John Morosi wrote a very touching story himself about informing his daughters about uh, the fact that there was someone that looked like them that was going to be the general manager of the Major League Baseball team. What's the next evolution uh not with this story, but with the idea of some more representation, some more diversity within front offices in major North American sports that are that are played by men. You know, this is uh, this isn't to ignore the WNBA or the pro hockey leagues that we have seen with women or professional soccer, which has been. Uh, growing in popularity in, in a sustainable professional model in the United States. Uh, but this is a, a pretty impactful story because it is a woman now in charge of, of player development, of player procurement, of running everything uh, and, and, and building a staff in terms of uh, male professional sports and, and being baseball, a sport that's been around uh, for over 100 years. Yeah, and in some ways, I find baseball specifically to be one of the sort of slower sports to adapt in some ways. And in this in this aspect, they've taken the lead in all of North American sports. Uh, make no mistake, I think every owner of every professional major sport, um, whether it's in North America or globally, will keep an eye on this. And as simple as it sounds, I think just sort of the appearance of her in that role and the job that she does. And by all accounts, she's a very qualified, very smart, um, very experienced executive. Uh, but I think you're going to have other other sports looking at this. Um, if I look at, you know, uh, hockey's the one I would know the best. I don't think we're particularly close to having a female general manager. And that's not to say that I don't think that that would be great. 
but unfortunately for a whole host of reasons, there have not been women that have been able to climb the executive ranks in hockey operations. And, you know, we don't have a Kim Ng in, in hockey, you know, there isn't sort of a, there isn't a woman who is overqualified for the position that has been passed over previously, but that's something that will hopefully change as we go forward here. Um, it was interesting. I know, actually, it's it's sort of coincidental, but uh, on Canucks Connected coming up next with Joey Kenward, he's going to have Dale Talon on. And Dale Talon was the GM of the Florida Panthers. And when he was let go, I know Elliot Friedman reported that that ownership group reached out to former U.S. Olympian Angela Ruggiero and asked if she would like to interview. And because of a few things she didn't end up interviewing she wasn't in a um she wasn't prepared um but it wasn't out of sort of interest but i i do think at that point she would still have been a very a long shot candidate because she's still fairly early in her sort of hockey management career her her on ice career only ended recently so we're working in that direction um the nba i know we've had um there's been assistant coaches uh, there's referees. I think there's some women in in basketball operations, but I don't know how close we are to seeing somebody in that top role. Sure. Um, so you know the the other name that that came to mind, and I wrote this down earlier. Um, she was a longtime Olympian for for Switzerland, um, Florence Schelling, and she's now the GM of SC um, uh, Basel, I think, in the Swiss Hockey League. So that was a move forward, but that's sort of a, you know, I don't want to say a lesser league, but it's not, you know, it's not the NHL. It's not a top league in that sense. So we're, we're moving there, but yeah, make no mistake about it. The, the hiring of Kim is a, is a huge moment in professional sports, um, professional male sports specifically. Another story I wanted to touch on is something that to me is, is really quite interesting the English Premier League came back uh, before the NBA, before the NHL last year to close out their season and then immediately resumed uh, with, uh, I think they were just a couple of weeks off. Their their regular uh, return to play gave the players a little bit of a runway, but the, the Premier League usually kicks off in, in early to mid-August. Uh, they've been right on track. While they've had some issues with COVID, they haven't had to have any serious cancellations there hasn't been any serious significant issues but they've been experimenting with uh, a bit of a, a different business model when it comes to the broadcasting of their games and it's very different over in england here in canada if you're a premier league fan if you're a soccer fan for years you'd be able to watch the games on sportsnet or on a variety of television networks now the games are all available on the zone and you can get any english premier league game on the zone if you play if you pay that monthly subscription fee and comes with a bunch of other stuff you get the nfl uh you get i believe you get Serie A, the italian league as well there are you get some boxing they they have uh, their fingers in a lot of different pies but the big one is the nfl and the premier league over in the uk it's a little bit different in terms of the television providers where you can access games how many games are broadcast at the same time there are certain windows and to counteract that to start this premier league season the Premier League rolled out a pay-per-view model, which was uh, just under 15 pounds, which comes out to around $20 Canadian to watch one game, one 90-minute game between 
two Premier League teams. It was not well-received at all. In fact, a lot of supporters decided to put their money in a protest uh, or as a protest. They, they decided to give that money to charity, and it was a big show. And I, from what I'm reading here uh, in a news article that ran at The Athletic a couple of days ago, supporters raised over 300,000 pounds while protesting the pay-per-view model. There was a lot of back and forth as opposed to some other sports in soccer, especially in Europe, supporters have a big say. While we're kind of used to the leagues and organizations and franchises sort of dictating the fan experience, and while fans certainly have a little bit of say in North America, it's not like it is over in Europe. And there was a lot of back and forth uh, about the fact that people were not were not pleased at all with the pay-per-view model, and, and, and so much so that the Premier League has decided to put that on hold. It comes at a time where, if the if you're familiar with with English Premier League soccer, the window of of fixtures, as they call it, in mid December through New Year's Eve is uh, is a or New Year's Day is a very uh, important part of um, of that of that culture. There are a lot of games. They play a lot of games. Boxing Day is a is a traditional ga- day for games, and they decided at least at this point that they don't want to mess with that and that they're they're going to put that on hold they're going to figure out some more traditional ways for the games to be televised two things stood out to me one as someone who consumes sports media someone who's interested in sports media what do you think about the pay-per-view model in general and the second thing which is a bit on a lighter note do you remember when the canucks had a handful of pay-per-view games i guess it would be 15 years ago it would be like in the mid 2000s there would be I think it was no more than 10 a year, but there, there were a handful of pay-per-view games. You yeah. could go to see them at movie theaters. Sometimes there was, it was a thing. And that sort of went away as Sportsnet uh, ended up you know, purchasing all of the Canucks rights and all of their games locally, at least on Sportsnet Pacific uh, were able to be viewed uh, on Sportsnet on television. Uh, it feels crazy to think that the Canucks and a few other, I think, NHL franchises were exploring that pay-per-view model such a long time ago, whereas the Premier League has decided to roll that out now where there is uh, much more acceptance for buying subscriptions for Netflix or, in our case, buying a subscription for DAZN to watch the Premier League. To have such a revolt from the supporters in England makes it, uh, to me, a really fascinating story. Yeah, I was reading the story as well. And, And correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding was that these were games that were typically not going to be aired yes. and that because of COVID and the fact that fans were not able to attend the games, they were going to make them available on television, but it was going to be through a pay-per-view service. Is that, that's correct, right? Yes. I mean, that was, if you are on Twitter at all, there were a lot of memes during some of these pay-per-view games involving some of the teams at the bottom half of the, the Premier League table where people were saying, you know, you'd have to pay me 15 pounds to watch this game and so it there is a bit of disconnect i mean the other big story going on right now in terms of the premier league is there's not a ton of validity validity to it at this point but this growing idea of the american owners which would be arsenal manchester united liverpool trying to either have a uh, a much bigger footprint across europe with a, a european super league or looking at the English model, which currently has the Premier League, the Championship, League One, League Two, but giving the teams at the top a little bit more say 
in board meetings and in, in uh, some business decisions, which again, like I said, there is a different way of business with professional sports in Europe and in England and the UK versus here. And those yeah. owners have made a lot of money running and, and, and buying Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, but are not necessarily used to all of the the red tape that they're running into because they owe something to supporters. And they, they I mean, like the thing that I think encapsulates this the best is that that I believe it's Saturday at 3 p.m. local time in, in England, in London. They can't uh, televise games in that window because that's when a lot of beer leagues play and, and like the lower levels. And they don't want to take away from people going to their local team. Uh, they don't want to put on, let's say, Arsenal against Manchester United in that slot because they think that people are going to stay home and watch the glamorous game as opposed to going down the street to their neighborhood team, which is something that we don't we don't have at that level no. in, in North America. Yeah, well, I think you touched on something. I mean, if you've spent any time in Europe and, and England specifically, there is at its core, the professional football clubs over there, they are their fan bases. They are sort of owned by the people. Even though they have sort of a financial owner, there is sort of a a structure, a philosophy, a belief that they are really the people's team. And I was trying to relate it this week as I as I sort of saw the story and and I was reading the backlash, and I, I didn't quite get it because you know if you take the Canucks for example, all the games are on TV, um, and if you know, if the NHL or Sportsnet was asking me to pay $20 to watch a Wednesday night game between the Montreal Canadiens and the Columbus Blue Jackets, I don't have a huge amount of interest. There would be a few, but I mean, I don't think there would be enough appetite for that to make sense. Um, as you know, we both enjoy sports media. As the landscape has changed here in the last, well, I mean, the last decade, it seems like it's changing faster and faster. I do hold the belief that it, as we see sort of the death of cable television, I think that at some point you will be able to go onto your Apple TV and, you know, tonight's Canucks game versus the San Jose Sharks will pop up and you'll be able to buy that one singular event for three ninety five or sure. $5. But, you know, and you won't have to pay for Sportsnet as a channel throughout. You can, and you'll get the games. But if you want to just cherry pick certain games, I think at some point you're going to be able to do that. People are not going to pay 20 bucks a game. Like that, that pricing model seems to be out of whack, but I don't think that there's necessarily going to be a huge uproar. But I also think culturally we connect with sports and the teams that we like slightly differently than they do in the United Kingdom. And I think there's a stronger belief over there that the fans are part of those teams, they're part of those clubs, and that they are owed something. And especially when it's taking more money out of their pocketbook than, you know, has been traditionally the case, um, you know, that that's going to be a bit of a problem. I, I can see it from their standpoint. It's like, if you can't go to the game, we want to make this game accessible to you. Um, but they have to recoup those costs. You know, all these leagues are trying to fix their bottom line. Um, they went about it. The fan base has sort of said that's not going to work and they've had to kind of go back to the drawing board. So um, it, it was an interesting lesson. I'm not sure it would, would, whether it was the NBA or MLB, I don't think the same thing would, would happen in North America. But 
I also think we connect with our sports a little bit differently than they than they do in the United Kingdom. Well, you mentioned that at this point, all the Canucks games are available on television. I mean, if it's not that long ago where that wasn't true. There would be a handful of games not available, whether and it was they explored the pay-per-view model. Now well, it's it's really difficult in baseball. I think baseball might be the only sport in North America where occasionally a couple of teams have games that aren't televised. They're only available on the radio. It's so rare now to see that. Yeah, well, I mean, we had Arthur Griffiths, the former owner of the Canucks, on last week, and we were talking about the 29th anniversary of Pavel Burry's first game. It wasn't televised, and you know there were more games not televised in the early 90s than they were televised. And, you know, I remember the pay-per-view era that you're talking about, and I think it lasted a couple of seasons. Yeah, maybe a handful. Two. Yeah. Um, my recollection is that sort of West Coast Express era. Like that was yep. 2005, somewhere in that neighborhood. And you're right. I think there were 10 games a season. And that was at a point where the Canucks felt like they could make more money going that route than whatever Sportsnet or TSN was offering to pick up those games. And they went that model. Um, the games were on TV. I remember the production value being not overly terrific <laughs> and that it was a bit of a running joke. Um, but it's gotten to the point now where, I mean, I can't remember how many years it's been, but Sportsnet regionally has the rights to the Canucks. They broadcast all of the games that are not the national games. Yeah. And for a period there, Hockey Night would have the Saturday games. If it was a national game on Wednesday night, TSN would have those games. And then Sportsnet had all the regional games. Uh, that changed in 2014 when Sportsnet bought the entire package. And so if you, you know, every Canuck game is on TV and they are all broadcast by Sportsnet, whether it's done regionally or if it's done by the, the, the national um, crews. Well, if you're listening to this and you're interested in nostalgia coming up with uh, coming up after us, Joey Kenward's got a 1970s edition of uh, Canucks Connected, catching up with a couple of uh, Canucks from from the the or the origin days, the the first days, well before my time, well before even Alex's time. One of those guys is is Dale Talon, and uh, he recalled his draft memory, which is uh, it stands out in, in Canucks history and NHL history as a pretty interesting NHL draft. Uh, here's a, a preview of what's to come. Uh, on Canucks Connected with Joey Kenward as interview with Dale Talon. I don't remember much because I wasn't there. You know, in those days you didn't go to the draft. I was up at the Bobby Orr Mike Walton Hockey School in Aurelia. I, I didn't expect to go that early, to tell you the truth. You know, we all knew that Pearl was going to be number one, either in Vancouver or Buffalo. And then, uh, the, you know, I, I thought I'd go in the top ten. I wasn't really thinking that I would go second overall. And I thought maybe that... Uh, the Canucks would take Reggie Leach or take a Western kid, and I would go maybe to the Bruins at three. And uh, I was startled. I was elated. I was happy. I was, uh, you know, I knew Vancouver was a great city and had a lot of players from the in their organization already, and they, they had a good head start as far as being an expansion team. But you know, I was once I found out, I was in a phone booth actually uh, driving on the 400 going to Toronto from Aurelia. My agent called and said that uh, I uh, was drafted second by Vancouver. I don't remember much because I wasn't there. You know, in those days, you didn't go to the draft. I was up at the Bobby Orr, Mike Walton. That's coming up next. Dale Talon, the full interview 
coming up next with Joey Kenward. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes here before we go to that. I mean, that clip says it all, doesn't it? Uh, 1970, <laughs> the Number two pick in the draft is not there. There's it was no spectacle. I mean, the draft has now become a big deal, a television event. Uh, we're looking at the way different games are being broadcast. It's it's changed a lot. And like, yes, I mean, for you and me, 1970 might feel like it was ages ago, but in in real history, it's it's not that far off. And it's crazy to see. The development and how fast it has evolved in sports and i mean you, we look at where we are today and the big story that we talked about kim ang general manager of the miami marlins the evolution there and most of it is is quite positive uh is 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 really something to behold definitely and i th i think i'm sure there's some evolution that has not been positive but when you look at um you know diver gender diversity within sports where, like we were talking about earlier with kim um, whether you look at health and safety protocols, um, the lack of fighting as that's been sort of worked out of the game and the impact that that has had on numerous players, um, even to some degree, the NFL, you know, I mean, it's a very physical sport. They have attempted to make that sport safer after, you know, a lot of health concerns have been raised from a lot of players that were playing in that era, the 1970s into the 80s. Um, you know, it's at its core, I think that's what humanity does best is we try to improve. Uh, we try to evolve. Um, I think when you when you look at sports, a lot of that motivation comes from, you know, a financial motivation. And, you know, the draft's a very good case. I mean, it's become uh, another property that they're able to sell, that they're able to engage their fans in, um, which is basically a way to generate more money. Um, but it also provides a really special night for those kids. You know, and sure. as Dale Talon said, that's his memory. <laughs> um, you know, and he's, you know, he's a top five pick, um, you know, you'll have kids that are second round picks now that go to the draft because yeah. they want that experience. It's something that they've worked, you know, their entire lives to that point. It's an important thing for their parents, their grandparents, um, their family members. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> a lot's changed since, uh, since the Canucks started in the league in 1970. All right, that's it for us this week. Thanks to John Morosi and Adam Stanley for joining us. If you missed those interviews, do check them out on the podcast. Much thanks to Joel Gaudet, who's been running the board for us today as well. On air, we'll be back next week. Canucks Connected with Joey Kenward is next. This is Sportsnet 650.